Okay, good morning, Bokatov. Hope everyone's well. Okay, this morning we'll study Parsha Zrae, page 998 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. And uh, Re begins with the promise. Moshe Rabbeinu turns to the people again. We're continuing all of Sefer Dvarim is this monologue on the last day of his life in which he is uh, trying to encourage and admonish and enjoin the people as they're about to enter the land. So he says, Moshe says, look, I place before you today two choices. You have two options. You can enrich your life by embracing Torah and mitzvahs and your life will be a bracha. It'll be imbued with purpose and meaning. Or you can neglect and you can dismiss the blueprint that I'm giving you for life, the recipe for life from the Almighty Himself. And you'll struggle through life and you'll stumble through life and it'll be a klala. It's a bracha. What's the bracha? The klala. What's the klala? In this opening of Pasha Sray, Moshe is telling us that the system of reward and punishment in this world is not something external to us. The system of reward and punishment is not that uh, you know you uh, you neglect what Hashem wants. Lightning bolt comes and strikes you down. And if you listen to Hashem, then all of a sudden you're going to win the lottery. But rather, the system of bracha and klala is the meaning and the richness of the life you will lead itself, of the feeling of closeness to the Rebbeinu Shalom himself. It's not unlike every relationship that we have in life. In marriage, if you are attentive to the needs of your spouse, if you are considerate and caring, if you're willing to compromise, there's no external reward that comes. The reward is a rich, meaningful relationship. And if you, on the other hand, violate the requests and the needs and the priorities of your spouse... If all you care about is yourself and you don't care about the other person, you're unwilling to compromise, the punishment is not some external punishment that happens. The punishment is that your relationship will be, will be uh, distanced, will be alienated from one another. So that's the bracha and klala here at the beginning of our parasha. We've discussed this before at length. You could listen online. I think it's one of the most uh, magnificent passages that could be interpreted in so many different ways. You could read that opening pasuk. I'll just give you two hints right now. But uh, I'm not elaborating. Again, you could listen to previous shiurim. You could read this opening pasuk. Anochi no hayom. What is it that I'm giving you today? What am I presenting? Moshe Rabbeinu says, Anochi, the concept of I, the concept of me, bracha uklala, and the attitude towards the I, how you see yourself, can either be a bracha or a klala. If you become an egomaniac, a narcissist, if you're consumed. By your and absorbed by your self-interest, then it's a klala. If the I is a instead, you know, uh, an I of uh, I'm unique. I'm a creation of the Almighty. I have a purpose to fulfill in this world. Then you'll turn it into a bracha. So Behold, Moshe says, Anochi, the concept of Anochi of I, that you are a person, that you are itzalem elokim, that you are. Uh, just beneath the Rebona Shalom, David HaMelech says in Tehillim, you're just a little bit below God. That concept of I can either be a bracha or klala, you can be a, an, a narcissist, an egomaniac, in which your life is a bracha, a klala, and the lives of those around you is a klala, or you can be charged with a sense of mission, your life is a bracha. I'll give you one other interpretation. Not Re'i Anochi no Lefnechem, it's not the concept of Anochi, but maybe it's Re'i Anochi no Lefnechem. Hayo, 
What am I placing before you, says Moshe? The concept of Hayom, of today. What I'm placing before you is the concept of mortality, is the value of time, is the passage of time and how time is irreplaceable. And that too, bracha or klala. The concept of the passage of time confronting our own mortality can lead to one of two conclusions. You could either say, well, if who knows how long I have to live, and I'm going to die anyway, I'm going to be a pleasure seeker. I'm just going to find all my own happiness and not care about anything else. Carpe diem, seize the day for the bad. Seize the day, just increase my own pleasure. So then klala, then your life is a klala. If the recognition of confronting your own mortality makes you uh, forfeit or concede the pursuit of spiritual ambition, but rather just pursue your own pleasure, your life's a klala. But if you notice about hayom, if you're confronting your mortality, makes you embrace every moment, every second, then it's a bracha. So again, this is not our topic for today. I'm just throwing at you this opening pasuk. This opening pasuk. Remember I said, this is the greatest Musr Sefer. Sefer Dvarim. Forget Mesilas Hasharim and Shari Tshuvorchos Tzaddikim Chol Sefer Dvarim. Moshe Rabbeinu's Musr Sefer is the greatest Musr Sefer there is. So Re'eh Anochi Nesenet Nechem Hayom. You could read it. Anochi is what he's putting before them. The concept of Hayom is what he's putting before them. Or just the notion of, as the Sukkim go on, that if you listen to Torah and Mitzvahs, your life is a bracha. If you neglect them, it's a klala, not because of the external punishment, but because of the life that you will live. Okay. He goes on, and he talks about the brachas, when I take you into the land. We know they pass into the land of Israel. They stand uh, six tribes on each side, Levim in the middle. They call out the brachas and klolos. The people answer Amen, and they are understanding uh, exactly what is happening. And what are they? Ela chukem meshvatim asher tishmurun laasos ba'aretz asher nasan Hashem elokei avasech alchal rishda. The notion of the sanctity of the land, the earth, the very soil of Israel is unlike any other in the world. It's imbued and endowed with holiness, with sanctity. Israel is the only place in the world that has mitzvos hatluyos ba'aretz. It has mitzvos that depend on the land. It's a shemitah year. We'll talk about shortly. But shumos maestros. You have mitzvahs that depend tluyos ba'aretz. The aretz, the soil itself, is considered to be sacred, is considered to be holy. And as such, that soil can't be contaminated. And how is the holiness of the soil of Israel contaminated? Not with pollutants, not with poisons, and not with uh, all kinds of uh, dangerous fertilizer sprays. But the Pasuk goes on, Abeyta avdunas kohen kamos, asher avdusham hagoyim, asher atem yorshimosam eselohehem. By idolatry, the earth, the soil, the sacred space of Israel is polluted, is contaminated by idolatry, by false gods. So the Torah tells us, what do you have to do when you enter the land? You have to get rid of them. You have to purge them from the land. And so on. And after giving us a long litany of exactly how to treat these places, these spaces in Israel... Then this section concludes, In contrast, while you are purging the land from its contaminants, that is what, exactly what you are not to do to Hashem. Which Rashi here tells us, This is the love, this is the origin of the prohibition of erasing God's name. Erase the names of the idolaters, erase the houses of worship of idolatry, the, they contaminate the land. But in contrast, never do that to God. And this, of course, is the origin of what we colloquially call shamos. 
when something contains the name of Hashem, you're not allowed to destroy it, you're not allowed to erase it. We're talking about it at Minchamar of this week. If you want to hear more about it, you could come there. Because it comes up, it's coming up tremendously today. There's a proliferation of printing Divrei Torah. Everybody prints stacks of Divrei Torah, stuff in their talis bag, to get them through davening and to, uh, to take them through the rabbi's drasha. So, uh, then what do you do with that stack when you're done? What do you do with this huge book you printed every week of, of Divrei Torah? So what do you do with all the source sheets that we hand out with every class that we give? What do you do with all the Jewish newspapers that have sections that have Divrei Torah and columns of Divrei Torah? What do you do with invitations, bar and bat mitzvah, wedding invitations that reference a pasuk or a verse? What if someone sends you an email that has a Divrei Torah that has a pasuk? Are you allowed to delete the email? Are you allowed to change the screen? Does the fact that Hashem's name appears on your screen permanently place your screen in Shemus that you're not allowed to look at your screen or change the screen? So these are some of the questions that, uh, that come up about Seamus. If you listen, if you have uh, an MP3, you listen to a shir, someone recites a puzzle, can you delete the file? You know, Rav Moshe dealt with it about a tape. Rav Moshe has a tshuva, where somebody records a shir, or somebody records laning on a tape. Can you destroy the tape? Can you put the tape in the garbage? Does the tape have the status of Seamus? You see there's a lot of questions, and it all comes from these uh, five words. Lo sasun kein l'ashem lokechem, what you have to do to uh, purge to purify the land from its uh, contaminants, never due to Hashem. Okay, the Torah then goes on. tells us that when you, again, Moshe is preparing them. They're about to enter the land. It's very exciting. Put yourself in Moshe's shoes, by the way, throughout all of Sefer Dvarim. How difficult and painful it must be for him. He's preparing them, but he's not going in. He's not going in. So he tells them, when you enter the land, this is what you have to do, and this, it's so exciting, and this is the next thing, and then this is going to happen, oh, you're going to stand on two sides of the mountain, har grizim, har eval, and then don't forget, you've got to take out those idolaters, they're contaminants, they're cancerous, they can, they, they're going to metastasize and spread, you've got to get rid of them. And then he tells them, and when you enter the land for the first 14 years, seven years of conquest, and then seven years of dividing the land, before you have a permanent home for the Mishkan, you're allowed to have Private bamos, you're allowed to have private altars. You're allowed to offer sacrifices privately. Once you have a permanent home for the Mishkan, later the Beis HaMikdash, we have one central location of offerings of sacrifice. And then you're not allowed to have private. If you decide in Boca Raton, in your backyard, I want to make my way all the way to Israel. How expensive the ticket is, how many miles it takes. I don't want to offer, I'll offer a carbon here. I'll build a little altar in my backyard. I'll follow the specifications of the Torah. And I'll offer here. You're not allowed to. But those first 14 years, you were. And here the Torah tells us about the laws of those private altars. We're then told about the, the uh, permission to eat if you have a uh, korban, if you have a bachor, which has a mum. You're allowed to redeem it. You're allowed to take the money to buy, purchase another animal, thereby making that animal eligible for consumption. Torah then goes on and tells us which foods can only be eaten in Yerushalayim. For example... My sashani can only be eaten in Yerushalayim. You have to bring it to Yerushalayim. Um, the Bechor, the animal that you separate, has to be eaten in Yerushalayim. And then we have top of page 1004. When Hashem will expand your boundaries. You're going to say, I want a barbecue. I live in Boko Raton. It's 6,000 miles from Yerushalayim. Or, I live in Sfat, all the way in the north. I live in Eilat. If you assume Eilat's Israel, Eilat's probably outside of Israel. But I live in the Negev, all the way in the, I live in Beersheba, all the way in the south. And I'm hungry, I want a steak. So, until now, you wanted a steak, the only way you could access flesh, the only way you could have meat was, 
you offer a korban shlomim, you bring a sacrifice to the base of mikdash. The shlomim, the baal, the one who brings it, can partake in the meat. So if you wanted meat, that was the only way. So now the Torah gives a dispensation. It says when you live a far distance where it's impractical that every time you're in the mood for fleshiks, which is often, that you're going to have to bring a sacrifice. When you live at a distance, so then, then you could eat to your heart's desire where you live. Now license was given for shechita outside the context of of uh, of karbonos. My brother once gave a chabura. I think he's uh, writing a chapter in his book about this. That you see from here that the origin of shechita, the origin of ritual sacrifice, and the origin of the permissiveness of eating meat was in the context of karbonos. That which we have dispensation to do so, even in Boca Raton, is not because we're gluttonous, ravenous carnivores who, who desire meat and can't live without it. But somehow is, is, an, is an extension of, or is the experience of, or is the symbolic um, reminiscent of, of course you can't have a bama, you're not allowed to have a private altar, so it's not that your Weber barbecue is a private altar in your backyard, but even when you eat meat outside the Beis HaMikdash, it is an extension of the permission granted through the process of Karbonos. So there's more to explore there, but it too is not our, our topic for today, but you see it's, it's fascinating. When the Torah says you're allowed to shechita, we, we think that we have two types of shechita, shechita's kachim and shechita's chulun, that you have the shechita of sacrifices and chulun, but you see shechita's chulun, even the regular shechita's chul, is an extension from this psukim of the original permission to eat meat through the korban shalom. Okay, Torah then goes on, it tells us, but when you do eat that meat, you're not allowed to eat the blood. Why? The blood is the life source of the living, and you can't eat the blood. We go out of our way, we uh, remove the blood through malicha, through, through salting, or in the case of a liver, through broiling. We cover up the blood, the mitzvah of kisrei adam, and uh, many derive from this pasuk that uh, in the great discussion or debate about brain death, what defines the moment of death? Is it when there's no brainstem activity, no cognitive activity, or is it the cessation of uh, respiratory activity based on the heart? Uh, pumping, so ki adam hua nefesh. Some suggest you see from here adam hua nefesh that in that debate this pasuk is uh, is used because you see the blood is the definition of of life. That too is part of a much greater discussion. I refer you to our own Rabbi Dr. David Shabtai's thick, wonderful, comprehensive book on on brain death. If you want to see more of that uh, of that discussion, okay. Torah then continues. It tells us. On the bottom of this page, Shmur v'shamat kol dvar ma'ila shenochi mitzavecha, mitzavecha, l'manyitav lach. Observe everything Hashem is telling us. It will be good for you. One of Moshe's messages, emphasized over and over again, is don't do it for God. Don't do it for God. God doesn't benefit because you choose to be observant. You're keeping Shabbos and kosher, not speaking lashon hara, having honest weights and measures, giving staka. God is omnipotent and infinite. God's life is not changed in iota. In either direction because of your behavior. Don't do it for God. God doesn't ask you to do it for Him. Why does God ask us to do it? It's for you. You want a meaningful, purposeful life. You want a righteous life. You want a life of integrity. It's for you. It's for you. The Mishalim, the Ramchal writes, based on a Pasuk in Tehillim, that it's in the very beginning of Mishalim. 
God created the world and He gave us life. Why? Lehis aneg al Hashem. What is the root of the word lehis aneg? Ayin nun gimel. What is ayin nun gimel? Oneg. What does that mean? What? To delight, to take pleasure. It means pleasure. Lehis aneg is hitpael, but God created the world to take to get pleasure. What's the ultimate pleasure? Is connecting with something greater than yourself. Right? We all know that it is an amazing source of pleasure to give nachas to a greater authority than ourselves. If our parent is proud of us, it's worth more than money. If our superior at work, even studies show, this is not me saying this, studies show that even more than a financial raise is the positive feedback, verbal positive feedback of a superior at work. When you please somebody who is perceived as superior to you, it's the natural tendency, psychological makeup of man is, it's a great source of pleasure. So says the Ramchal, Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzato, in life, lehisaneg al Hashem. Get high on God. Have unbelievable pleasure in knowing you're giving nachas to Hashem. Laman yitavlach, it's great for you. It feels good. It's pleasurable. And here is the prescription for life. Again, we've spoken about this at length in the past. I've written about this. I got into trouble with some who weren't so happy when I wrote about this one week. This pasuk appears elsewhere as well. And the Ramban, the main discussion of Asisa Tova Yasher, appears earlier in Perak Vav, Pasuk But it is the overall umbrella mandate. God says, I've legislated 613 laws which really translate into thousands of laws, right? And you add rabbinic laws. We've got a ton of laws. I've legislated so many scenarios that you can imagine. But you know what? In life, there's going to be a lot of scenarios that can't be legislated. They don't appear in the four sections of Shulchan Aruch. So you know what you should do? When you stop and you wonder and you're unsure what's the right thing to do in this moral dilemma, you know what you should ask yourself? What would God want me to do? Do what is right and what is just in the eyes of Hashem. So the airline made a mistake and they're offering the flight at a price that's wrong. Would God want you to start emailing that to all your friends and take pride and buy as many tickets as you can and take advantage of someone else's misfortune? If it was your brother's store online that made a mistake and offered the wrong price, would you want everybody taking advantage of your brother and emailing it around? That's why I got in trouble. That's when I wrote about this. There are scenarios in life that, yeah, you could twist, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, you could prove it's not, it's halakhically okay, it's not really also, there's a hetter. But in those moments, even when something is mutter, the Ramban calls it novel b'rshus Torah. You could be doing something perfectly permissible. But this guy, is God happy with you? Is he giving nachas? Is it the right thing to do? Is it the right thing to do? And that's what the Torah is telling us. When you have those moral dilemmas, when you're unsure, stop and say to yourself, what does God want me to do? Now, how do you answer that question? How do you answer that question? So clearly, the more you know God, the better you know God, the better positioned you are to answer what He would want you to do. If you barely know God, how are you possibly going to guess what He would want you to do? But if you study His Torah, and you get to know Him, then when you're in that predicament, you better be positioned to try to predict or guess what he would want you to do. Okay, let's keep going because we haven't even gotten to what I want to study yet today. This is still the overview. The parsha is so rich. There's so much here. We have the Navi Sheker, false prophet. Now the Torah goes into a... Moshe Rabbeinu goes into warning the people. When you get into the land and you settle down and you forge yourself as a nation and you create a society, you're going to have 
all kinds of counterfeit, you're going to have all kinds of imposters that rise. And they're going to try to seduce you. They're going to try to take our nation off its course. They're going to try to undermine our mission. Whether it's the Navi Sheker, the false prophet, whether it's the Mesesu Meidiach, the one who tries to entice you and seduce you, whether it's the Ir Midachas, an entire city of idolatry. But these are all, and we now have Mesesu Meidiach all over the internet. Blogs and Facebook, everyone, every foreign thought ideology, every philosophy is all over and it's enticing because it's persuasive, it's seductive. You read it, it's attractive. How do you know what's true, what's not true? These things are they're seducing you. And you really have to examine who is its author, what's their credibility, what are their credentials. Just because it's persuasive, do I know it's true? We have to be very careful about all the ideas and all the practices and all the foreign things that are entering. This is what Moshe Rabbeinu is warning, warning them. You have a false prophet. You're going to have Mesus Umeidiyach who's trying to lead you astray and knock you off of what is the Mesorah, what is the traditional, proper Jewish course. You're going to have Yerni Dachas, entire communities that are trying to do that. And Moshe Rabbeinu warns us. He then reminds us, we're going to look at the Pesukim shortly, your children to Hashem, that has certain consequences. We then get into the laws of Kashrus. Notice that the laws of Kashrus are introduced by telling us that if you eat non-kosher, lo sochal kol, to'eva. We throw the word to'eva around to discuss uh, the prohibition of homosexuality, of which it is a biblical prohibition, absolutely categorically, without question. We have to be sensitive, we have to be uh, respectful, we have to be warm and welcoming to every Jewish individual with whatever struggles they have, people who violate, struggle with everything. I bring this to your attention right now, only to point out, the Torah in a number of places calls things a to'eva. Non, eating non-kosher is a to'eva. Having dishonest weights and measures, people who cheat in business. You know what else is a to'eva to God? You know what else is considered an uh, abomination to God? When you go to lunch with your friend and you submit it for a tax deduction because uh, you mentioned uh, how you're doing in business. That's a to'eva. That's a to'eva to us. That's an abomination. So we should not have righteous indignation about some to'evas over other to'evas. Different people have their struggles. We have to be honest and true in defending Torah and recognizing what is categorically forbidden. It can't be matir asurim. We can't pretend that which is forbidden is permissible. Even if society has changed, we don't. But we should see it in context to realize the Torah has a number of things it calls a to'eva. And we should have a similar attitude towards all, which is that we love people even when we disagree or condemn their behavior. And we embrace people, we welcome people, we invite people, we're respectful and sensitive towards people, whether they're eating non-kosher, whether they're struggling with being honest in business, or whether they're struggling in other areas. So here are the laws of kashas. We then have the section of Shemitah's Ksafim, which also we're going to study today, eventually, if we get to it. Shemitah's Ksafim, which is the laws of canceling loans, how Shemitah cancels loans which goes right into sensitivity to our brothers and sisters who are struggling financially, the mitzvahs of tzedakah, and, uh, and not oppressing a fellow Jew. And the parsha concludes with the moados, with the uh, cycle, the Jewish calendar, the cycle of the calendar. This is a fantastic part, every parsha. So much in this parsha, it's unbelievable. So let's look at... Um, let's see if we have time for everything. I wanted to quickly look at three psukim, Perak Yedalek, Pasuk Aleph. Perik Yedalek, Pasuk Aleph. That was the overview. Now we're going to delve inside. Page 1010. 1010 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. 
says Moshe Rabbeinu, Banim atem l'ashem alokeichem. You are children to the Almighty. Lo sesko dedu, v'lo sasimu karcha bein eineichem lames. Because you are children to the Almighty, even though it's a non sequitur, it doesn't continue. It just says, Banim atem l'ashem alokeichem. It doesn't say, Beglal, Beshvil. Just... But we are to understand it as because you are children to God, losis go to do, velosasimu karcha benechem lames. What is losis go to do? Don't cut yourself. And losasimu karcha, karcha is a bald spot. Don't pull out your hair. Don't pull out your hair between your eyes. Lames. What does that mean? In antiquity, in ancient times, in the Torah times, um, other nations, non Jews, would express their profound mourning. They would show their incredible grief by cutting themselves, by pulling out their hair, by self-mutilation. That would be how you show unbelievable pain. comes along the Torah and it says, you are forbidden. That is not how we mourn as Jews. It's inappropriate. It's a Torah violation. Los is go to do. Don't cut yourself. And don't pull out your hair. Why? What does that have to do with What does one thing have to do with the other? You're children of God Don't cut yourself Because you're children of God You can't feel pain You can't feel grief You can't grieve excessively What does one thing have to do with the other? And then the Pasuk continues You're a holy nation for God And from the entire humanity God has chosen, He has selected you to be His skula, to be His treasured people. So, your children of God is bookended. These two laws, don't cut yourself, don't pull out your hair, are bookended by your children of God and from all the nations who specifically chose you. What does one thing possibly have to do with another? What does one thing have to do with another? So that's what all the Mepharshim here deal with. Who should we start with? First of all, Banim Atem says the Balaturim, Rav Yaakov ben Asher, Banim Atem, Yudbeis Tevos Papasak. This verse, Perikidal the Pasak Aleph, has, not coincidentally, says the Balaturim, 12 words in the Pasak. Why 12 words? Keneged, Yudbeis Shvatim, Shinikru Banim Lashem. Banim Atem Lashem, you are children of Hashem. 12 words in the Pasak. Who are the children of Hashem? The 12 Shvatim, corresponding, 12 words corresponding with. 12 Shvatim. Okay, nice. That is the Balatur. Explains the Ibn Ezra. Tam Bonim. Why are you not allowed to? If you look at the Ibn Ezra, you'll see that he has the verse, the Pasuk in the reverse order. Sisko Dudu, Ketam Veseret Lenefesh, Migzerok Edam Gedudos, Tasimu Karcha, Kemishparagoyim Arayomazeh. Don't cut yourself. Don't pull out your hair, make a bald spot, just like the non-Jews do, even in medieval times, the Ibn Ezra says, even in his day. Vitam, and why shouldn't you do those things? Because banim. Once you realize your children to God, that God loves you even more than a father loves his children, don't react to anything in life excessively. What message does it send to the Almighty, to your Father, if He does something to you and you excessively mourn, you grieve excessively, you've rejected God, you don't believe what He's done is for your best. 
And let's say you don't understand why God's done it. My two and a half year old doesn't understand why he can't stick his fingers in the outlet or run in the street. He doesn't understand. That's fun. So when his Abba gives him a little patch on his hand in order to make him realize, don't do that. He doesn't understand why I'm doing that. I've now taken away his fun. He cries. He says, you mean Abba. So what do we hope? What do we try for our children to understand? That, by the way, from my two and a half year old to when my 17 year old, I don't let her go somewhere. I don't let her uh, participate in something. She also, you're mean Abba. Why don't you want me to have fun? Why can't I live my life? It doesn't, I don't know, you'll tell me if that goes on into the 30s and 40s when your children uh, get bigger and bigger. At that point, at that, po- at that point, you can't say anymore. You're not allowed to. You know, you start. You still say as long as you're paying for the cell phone, you can say it. I guess. So says the uh, Ibn Ezra. Little kids don't understand why you, as a parent, do that. But what do you hope? That nevertheless, they always appreciate that you're doing it for their good. I don't expect you to be happy with it. Say to the two-year-old and the seventeen-year-old. I don't expect you to be happy with it. You're entitled to be disappointed by it. You're entitled to be upset by it. But the one thing I want you to know is, I'm not doing it to punish you, to hurt you, to spite you. I'm doing it because I love you. And I may be wrong, but this is what I perceive is the best thing for you. So the Rebona Shalom is never wrong. And it's not what he perceives. What he does is the best thing for us. So if we were to cut ourselves or pull out our hair, what it's telling God is, I don't believe that whatever I've just experienced, as painful as it is, is best for me. So says the Ibn Ezra, why is there the punit- why is there the prohibition? Because you're children of Hashem. He's your father. If something's happened to you, it's because your father thinks it's for the best. So grieve, cry, mourn. We have Shiva and Shloshim and Yid Beis Chodesh. We have mourning. But mourn excessively? Don't do that. Whatever Hashem has brought upon you, it is for the good. And therefore, don't grieve excessively. Says the Ibn Ezra, you're a holy people, you're not like everyone else. Don't do like everybody else. The Ibn Ezra continues. Why is the next section in the parsha Kashrus? We go from your children of Hashem. Don't mourn and grieve excessively by cutting yourself. Oh, and don't eat. Now, Kashrus, hear the laws of Kashrus. Why? Beautiful, says the Ibn Ezra. What's the Sequence. Because you're Bonim Atem Lashem, you are God's children. God selected you. He gave you a mission. He gave you a purpose. He gave you a calling in this world. You need to be a distinguished people. You need to distinguish yourselves. How do you distinguish yourselves? Both by the way you grieve to what you eat. The inability socially to participate and partake in every social context because you can't eat in that restaurant. Because you can't eat. You can't indulge in that, in that uh, buffet. That separates us. That distinguishes us as a people and reminds us of our sacred mission 
and of our purpose. So says the Ibn Ezra, that is the smichas parshias. That's the sequence going on here. Banim atem Hashem lokeichem, you're children of God. Don't grieve excessively. Because you're children of God, you know that it's your father who did this. Don't grieve excessively, you're rejecting your father. And when you remember your banim atem, when you remember your God's children, you have a mission. Separate yourselves, make havdalah. One of the great ways we make havdalah. I mean, just think about it. If you stop keeping kosher, it's done. Yiddishkeit, the, the, the boundary between uh, stopping to keep kosher and intermarriage, it's a very slippery slope. The laws of kosher that say you can't participate in everything. Even in a business meeting, your thing comes out double-wrapped. Or you're eating the cut-up fruit while everyone else is, is uh, delving into the whatever. Wherever, whether it's in a business setting, whether it's on a cruise, whether it's... Uh, we are reminded through the laws of kashras always that we are different. Whether it's walking the aisles of the, of the supermarket, whether it's the options of where you could eat out, we are constantly reminded kashras is an unbelievably powerful, powerful tool. It's a powerful vehicle in reminding us that we are different, without which we would forget and assimilate. So that all is the extension of Banamatem, that is the Ibn Ezra. The Sfarno has a different interpretation. Says the You've lost an immediate relative, but your real father, your immortal, your eternal father, is uh, well. So it's wrong to excessively cry over your immediate relative while you still have the love and while you still have the providence of your great father in heaven. Or understood that, the way some others understand it, that if you believe in God, you believe in the immortality of the soul. And if you believe in the immortality of the soul, you realize that while it's painful to physically be separated from a loved one in this world, we will be reunited with that loved one for eternity. That yes, for the rest of our 70, 80, 120 years, it is exceedingly painful to lose a spouse, God forbid a child, to lose a parent, even though that's the normal course of life. It's very painful to lose a loved one. But if you recognize that that loss is not permanent, that in fact, the 20, 30, 50 years you'll live without that person is, is tiny, tiny span of time in the context of immortality, of eternality, then you realize that you shouldn't mourn excessively. Mourn and cry. It's understandable to mourn and to cry. But to cut yourself, to pull out your hair, to grieve excessively, is to deny the immortality of the soul. It's to deny that there will be a reunion between you and that lost loved one. So, as far as no others explain, that's the connection. You God's children. You believe in the immortality of the soul. You believe in the world to come. You believe in the resurrection of the dead. Don't grieve excessively. Cry. Mourn. Don't, don't deny those feelings. Mourn. But don't mourn excessively because that would be to deny the immortality of the, of the soul. Okay. That's where he said, I'm sorry, the Sforno says this in the next comment. Why are you grieving excessively? You're crying for the lost loved one because their life is over? You believe they went to a better place. The only reason we cry when, we, when someone dies is not for them. We cry for us. 
we miss them. We don't have access to them. We don't have physical contact with them. But for them, they're in a better place. That's not just, you know, a cliche. They're in a better place. And that's not supposed to make us feel better. Their being in a better place doesn't make us feel better because we still are without them. But we're crying because we are without them. We're not crying for them. We do believe they're in a better place. And that is an extension of because we're children of Hashem and we know where they went, that's why we should not uh, mourn or grieve excessively. Okay, so that is this uh, section. Just one other footnote. Chazal understand Los Eskodudu in a number of places in uh, Shas. Los Eskodudu, Shiloyasu Agudos Agudos. We have a prohibition. Los Eskodudu literally means to cut yourself. But you could also interpret Los Eskodudu in Aguda means a bundle, a unit. Los Eskodudu, Losasu Agudos Agudos. Do not splinter and break off into separate groups. And from here, there's a big discussion of the Rishonim, it's quoted in Shulchan Aruch. You're not allowed to in one community, have multiple practices that look like they are competing. And the Mepharshim, the old debate, why is that prohibited? Rashi says, because it's going to look like you have multiple Torahs. Here we are saying that we have one centralized, authoritative Torah, one word of Hashem transmitted through Moshe to Yoshua to the Zakanim and so on. So what's going to happen? When you have one community that's doing things differently, people are going to say, what do you have, many different Torahs? Many different Torahs. Losasu agudos agudos. You can't splinter into different groups. That's Rashi's understanding. Different uh, Rishonim understand uh, differently. In fact, Moshe Feinstein applies this uh, prohibition of uh, losasu agudos agudos to if you're in a shul where the minig of that shul is for everybody to sit during Kriya Satora, you're not allowed to stand. Losasu agudos agudos. Everybody sits for Chazar Sashatz. You're not supposed to stand. I once davened in a shul in Manhattan many years ago, and uh, I'd just come back from my year in Israel, and I just began the practice of standing for Kriya Satora. And that shul, it wasn't uh, like we have in many shuls, where it's a free-for-all, everyone does what they want. They were a shul that had very defined minhagim. And the gabai came over to me, tapped me on the shoulder, and told me to sit down. <laughs> Said the minhag in the shul is to sit, we sit. I remember being a little uh, upset about it, but he was right. Moshe Feinstein has an explicit shuvah. So you'll ask, well, what's happened today? Right, in one show, we have seven minyanim in Boker Ton Synagogue. Ashkenazim, Svardim, Shtibol, Karba, Agudos, 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 Agudos. Everybody's doing different things. Everybody's doing different things. So, if you go through that sugya, which we're not going to do, you see that it's sometimes permissible if you have two din in one ear, if you have two Beisdins in one city, but it's not in, in the same shul. When is it permissible? When is it not? Most Akronim understand that what's happened today is the application of that halacha was in a time where communities had their defined practices. Elizabeth, New Jersey, what Rabbi Tait said, that was Elizabeth. Minag Elizabeth, you did not deviate from Minag Elizabeth. But today, we no longer have that. Today, all of our shuls are melting pots of yekas and, and, uh, and uh, litvaks and chassidim and svardim and you, we're all melting pots of it all. So this halacha in its application has become a lot more has become a lot more limited. But it does apply. When you come to questions like if you daven in a minion where they don't say tachan, should you say tachan? And if they say, you know, you're Ashkenaz and a Svaradik minion, or Svaradik and an Ashkenaz minion, what should you do? That salacha still, still comes up. Okay, so it's not a comprehensive examination of the issue of uh, Los do, but I want to bring it to your attention because it's based on this Pasuk. Okay, in our remaining few minutes, I want to go look at the Pesukim. Sarah, you had a question?
Oh, why do we stand for Aseris Adibros? That's a great separate topic. Right. That's a separate discussion. It goes way before uh, Rabbi Yehuda. The Rambam, in his Chuvos, has a discussion about whether you should stand. The Rambam was against standing for Kriya Satora because it made, uh, for Aseris Adibros because it made the Ten Commandments look like they were more superior to the rest of the, to the, rest of the Torah. However, Ramosha Feinstein has a tshuva, Tzitz Eliezer has a tshuva, there are many, and, and Ravavadi Yosef Paskins like the Rambam, Sfarim should not stand for Aseris Adibros, it would differentiate it from the rest of the Torah. However, Rav Moshe says the Minig is to stand, the Tzitz Eliezer says the Minig is to stand. In that tshuva of the Tzitz Eliezer, of Eliezer Waldenberg's Zetzal, he says something fascinating. Aside from all of his halachic arguments about why it's okay to stand, he says, I grew up in Yerushalayim, I watched Sadikim, Gaone Olam, Talmide Chachamim, and their minute was to stand. I'm not smarter or holier than they are. It's fascinating that in the halachic process, one of the pieces of evidence he brings is not a textual source, but is the practice he saw from, uh, from people he deemed to be very righteous in their own right. And he says, I'm not, gonna about to, I'm not about to impugn their integrity by suggesting they were wrong and I am more right. It all is based on the Gemara Brachos, which says that Chazal originally, the Mishnah says originally, Aser Sadibros was incorporated into davening. But then they undid Bitlu. They undid that practice, Mishum Haminus. Bitlu Mishum Taromas Haminus. Rashi there in the Gemara Baruch says, what does it mean they cancel because Taromas Haminim? Because uh, what happened is the heretic said, you see, Aser Sadibros, that's the only real Torah. The rest of it is uh, fake, is man-made. That's the only part we heard from God is the Ten Commandments. So they took it out of davening. So the Rambam based on that says, if it was good enough to take out of davening because it looked like it was separate, we shouldn't stand for just it. But if Moshe Feinstein comes along and he says, yeah, they took it out of davening, but they didn't say anything about standing. So some have a compromised opinion. Rav Moshe Sternbach, Chivas Van Hago says, stand from the beginning of the Aliyah. If you stand from the beginning of the Aliyah, then you fulfill both. You're standing for Kriya Satorah, but you're not standing only for Kriya, for Aseris Adibros. You're standing for Aseris Adibros, but you're not standing only for Aseris Adibros. So, anyway, that's the issue of standing for... But that, that has nothing to do with the Parsha. That was just an example that I gave. Okay, for our last few minutes, I want to look at the question of Shemitah's Ksafim. Because it's very timely and apropos. And this is the beginning of Perak Tesvav. Beginning of Perak Tesvav. Page 1014. 1014. Says the Torah. Miket Sheva Shanim We previously saw, we previously saw, Parshas Bahar, the laws of Shemitah's Karka. Parshas Bahar, we studied, the Torah tells us, every seventh year is a sabbatical year, leave the land fallow, you're not allowed to work the land, and we have many, many laws. This is a Shemitah year today in Israel. It's complicated. I was just in Israel this summer to know what you're allowed to eat, what you're allowed to do with your land. Should you follow Hetem Mechira? Do you follow Otzer um, Beisden? Do you follow Yivul Nachri? If you eat food that has Kedushas Shviyas, you're not allowed to throw it out. You have to have a separate... Everybody in their house, observing people, have two garbage cans in their house in the Shemitah year. You have your regular garbage can and you have your Shemitah, your Pach uh, Shemitah, which... Rav Shechter says you couldn't, shouldn't call it a pach. It's not, you don't, in the same sentence, refer to Kedusha Shviyas as garbage. But it's, a, it's complicated observing the laws of Shemitah's Karka. So Parshas Bahar is where you have the laws of Shemitah regarding the land. You leave it to lay fallow, you can't work the land, and so on. Here now in Parshas Re, we have the second laws of Shemitah, which are the laws of Shemitah's Ksafim. Not only do you leave the land fallow, you leave, your, you leave or nullify your loans. 
Miket Sheva Shanim, at the end of seven years, Ta'aseh Shemitah. You make Shemitah. What does the word Shemitah mean? You make Shemitah, Ta'aseh. Our scroll translates it as remission. You remit your loans. You remit the land. I guess you both, in both cases, the common denominator with the land and your loans is you are relinquishing ownership. You are stepping back. You relinquish ownership of the land. You're not working it. It's not yours. And you relinquish ownership of your loans. You nullify. You cancel. You forego them. They are not yours. What are you supposed to do? This is the law of Shemitah, of letting go. Every creditor remits his authority over what he's lent over the loans. Don't press your, your brother. You proclaim... This is interesting. You proclaim kara shmita lashem. You proclaim that you are relinquishing ownership. You proclaim that you are walking away lashem for Hashem. As anachriti goes, the non-Jew, you can maintain that loan. You could press him for the loan. You're allowed to press the non-Jew, but what you have over your brother, you cannot continue that authority. However, may there not be any poor among you. Hashem will bless you in the land that you inherit. If you listen, here you have the double language. We spoke about this in the Drosha Lashabs. Shamoa Tishma. Right? We said the Yorachayim HaKadosh Pshat, Rashi, the Gemara Sukkah, Shamoa Biyashan Tishma Bechadash. Again, you see the use of the double verb in Shamoa Tishma. If you listen to Hashem and observe this mitzvah, then God will bless you. You will rule over them, and they will not rule over you. Okay, so here we have succinctly the second laws, second parallel laws of Shemitah, namely the prohibition of collecting loans. You have to forfeit, you have to forego the laws. In the Psukim, you have three biblical laws when it comes to loans. Number one, you have a positive commandment that you have to release. Zedva Shemitah, Shemot Kol you have to release whatever loans. You also, that's a positive commandment, to release the loan. You also have a lav. It's a lav haba mechlala say, because it's in contrast to, it says, you should press the non-Jew, don't press, so that's now a lav. It's a prohibition. You're not allowed to demand repayment of the loan. And then you have a second negative uh, prohibition, that you're not allowed to hold back from lending money. Now you might think in the Shemitah year, right now, we're coming up at the end of the Shemitah year. So, Murray comes to me and he says, Rabbi, the vending machine, I'm hungry, can I borrow two dollars? I'll pay you back, uh, I'll pay you back in uh, 30 days. I'll pay you back at the end of Shemitah. So he says, Mark, I pay you back at the end of Shemitah. You know Shemitah's going to cancel it. I say, no. Mari, I'm not an idiot. I might have been born at night, but I wasn't born last night. So, I'm not lending you two dollars because please, Shemitah... Rabbi, I need it. So the Torah says, Allah, you're not allowed to refrain from lending because, you're, because you're, uh, you realize that the loan is going to be canceled. So Chazal understood, so they saw what was happening. Hillel Hazakim, Hillel the elder in his time, looked around his world and he saw that despite the positive commandment plus the two negative commandments, people were not lending. And the economy was grinding to a halt. When there's no credit, when no one's lending... The economy can't function. 
The economy relies on loans. So Hillel instituted the Prusbol. And the Prusbol, which has to be signed by the 29th of Elul, by the end of Elul, in order to retain the loan, was a rabbinic innovation, a legal loophole, in order to maintain a loan even when it should have been cancelled. How does the Prusbol work? We'll save that for another time because we have organized uh, two times. You'll see the new Elul brochure just came out. You'll get it in the mail soon. So we have two dates that we have a based in. Rabbi Maskutz, Rabbi Shabtai, myself will sit and uh, serve as a based in for people to come and arrange a prisbol. If you've lent anyone money, you'll want to arrange a uh, prisbol. So the Shabbos, before we do that, I'm going to give a shear about prisbol. How did Hillel do that? How does the prisbol work? You know, many uh, other denominations, let's just say of Judaism, always quote the prisbol as evidence that halacha evolves. You see, Judaism evolves, halacha evolves, it changes. Yes, the Torah says that you're not allowed to, uh, that you have to cancel the loan. Hillel made a prisbol. If Hillel can make a prisbol, we can change the laws too. So, why are they wrong? Why are they wrong? Did Hillel change the law? How does a legal loophole work? How did the prisbol work? And why are they wrong? We'll discuss that another time. So you have these prohibitions. Does, does Shemitah's Ksafim apply today? Does Shemitah's Ksafim apply today? So the answer is yes. The Gemara Gittin tells us, quotes Rabbi Nasi, Rebbe, who says that you see there are two types of Shemitah. Shemitah's Ksafim and Shemitah's Karka, and they go hand in hand. And there's a big machlok as we've shown and what he means to tell us. Are they a function of Yovel? Or is Shemitah Ksafim a function of Shemitah's Karka? But the conclusion of the Shulchan Aruch is that Shemitah's Ksafim applies even today, although it applies rabbinically. When Shemitah on the land is rabbinic, then Shemitah of loans is rabbinic as well. Unlike the Shemitah of the land, which obviously applies exclusively in Israel, Shemitah's Ksafim for going loans applies even outside of Israel. If you just read these Psukim, you'll see it doesn't mention <coughs> in any way being dependent on the land. It's dependent on time. At the end of seven years, you, uh, your loans are, are forgiven and, uh, and therefore it applies even outside the land of Israel. Let's say the person who is the borrower, whose loan is forgiven, wants to repay anyway. Can he? So the halach is yes, he can. And not only can he, but Chazal praised the individual. That if he comes to the person who forgave his loan and says, I want to pay you anyway, Chazal give him a lot of bracha. So we're not looking to hurt the lender, but nevertheless the Torah wants to inculcate within us a redistribution, and that's a negative connotation to it. The Torah are absolute capitalists. Mishnah Pirkei says that a person who says what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine, that's, that's a bad quality. We're not communists, we're not socialists, we're capitalists. Mishnah endorses the one who says what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. We're capitalists, we're not communists. And yet, there's a level of social consciousness, there's a level of caring about everyone so that, I don't mean this with any connotation, redistribution of wealth, but there is a notion of trying to, every seven years, reset the economy to equalize. So that when you cancel loans, and when you let poor people come eat from your fields from that year, and when you live for a year knowing what it's like not to have an income, there is a reset button on the entire economy once every seven years, which is healthy for society. But nevertheless, if the borrower wants to pay, Chazal, our rabbis, our rabbis uh, praise him. When does Shemitah's Ksafim occur? The beginning of the seventh year or the end of the seventh year? So let's look in the Mepharshim. If you look, the Ibn Ezra says, Miketz Sheva Shanim Ta'asa Shemitah. Miketz, Ibn Ezra understands as, Bitchilas Hashanah, in the beginning of the year, which he says is how I explained elsewhere, Kasher Pirashti. 
And if you look at other examples, you see, he says, that in the context, Miketz can mean the beginning. So for the Ibn Ezra, and there are other Rishonim, the Rush Paskins this way as well, when is the loan cancelled? At the beginning of the seventh year, which means when do you need to arrange a prisbol? At the end of the sixth year. That's the Ibn Ezra, the Rush's opinion. The Ramban says, no. He quotes Rabbi Avram Ibn Ezra, and he says, no. Miketz doesn't mean the beginning of the seventh year. Miketz means the end. The Adas Rabbi Seyna writes the Ramban, Miketz besofa sheva. When is Miketz? The end of the seventh year. So the loan is cancelled with Rosh Hashanah. It's the end of the seventh year, at the very end of Elul. That's when the loan is cancelled. When do you need to make a prisbol? At the end of Elul. How does the Shulchan Aruch Paskin? Machlok is Rosh, another Rishonim. Machlok is Ibn Ezra and Bani on our Parsha. Shulchan Aruch says the loan is cancelled at the end of the seventh year. So you should make the prisbol in Elul. The Shulchan Aruch Harav, the Alter Rebbe Shulchan Aruch, does quote an opinion that it's cancelled at the beginning of the seventh year. So some Chabad, I guess, are machmir to do a prisbol both at the end of the sixth year and at the end of the seventh year. To be careful for both opinions. But we pass in the end of the seventh year, so we arrange a prisbol at the end of the, at the, end of the uh, seventh year. Now it's interesting, the Pasuk said, Ki karash mital Hashem, you have to call out Shemitah. You have to call out that you are canceling. Why? For Hashem. So look at the Ibn Ezra. Shemitah Lashem, Lechvod Hashem, Shemnason Lo Hamamon. In honor of God, what's the greatest recognition, God, that the money that I am watching, I am simply the um, custodian of, but it's your money. What's the greatest evidence? When I'm willing to forego a loan, because you told me to. In other words, if you're watching my money and you lend the money out, and then I come to you and I say, you know, so-and-so owes you money, you're watching my money in a trust, let it go. I'm letting them keep it. You have to listen to me because it's my money. You can't decide, no, I'm taking it anyway. You're my trustee. You're watching, you're doing it for me. So when God says, I've blessed you to be able to have this money and we lend it, and now he says every seventh year, I want you to let go of the loan. So how do we show God that we really recognize that it's his money, we are just the custodians of it, the trustees of it? By actually executing what he asks. And that's what the Ibn Ezra says. Shemitah Lashem. We, we remit the loan for God. What do you mean? Lashem means in the recognition, Lechvod Hashem, Shenason Loha Mamun. In the honor of God who lent us, who lent us the money, who uh, rather gave us, who granted us the blessing of that, of that money. Now the Pasuk says you declare this, Shemitah Lashem. Do you have to declare? The loan is cancelled? What if you didn't declare it? So the Mishnah in Shvi says that yeah, a person declares when the other person comes to repay the loan, I declare that the Shemitah and that therefore the loan is cancelled. Chazal say, and it's passing to the Rambam, that the lender um, has to declare. But the Minchas has a discussion. What if the lender didn't declare? What if the lender, and you can have this, let's say you borrowed money from a non-observant Jew. I could care less. Shmita, Shmita, Ksafim, Parshas Re'ei. I could care less. The loan is still there. So, does the loan apply even if the lender does not say that he relinquishes the loan? So, this is a, the Minchas Chinach raises this discussion, and there's a big machlokus between the Yireim, the Velazim Emitz, and the Or Zarua. The Yireim says that the person has to remit the loan in order for it to be cancelled, whereas the Or Zarua and many most other Rishonim say no. It's uh, God 
of course, of the Shmaya. It's God who is relinquishing the loan. Whether you declare it or not, the Torah has relinquished the loan. And there's a great consequence. There's a big, mach- big nafkamina between these two opinions. Because let's say as the borrower, I don't repay the person. So according to the Urayim, you violated, you're stealing the money. Because so long as they didn't remit the loan, they're entitled to the money. Whereas according to the Orzarua, you are, um, you are allowed to keep it because the loan was canceled automatically by the Torah, by God. Or a second nafkamina, a second practical difference is, let's say the lender goes and takes it back because they claim it's theirs, they want to take it back. So they go and reach into my pocket and they take the money. So is the lender now a thief? So according to the first opinion, they're not a thief. Because while they were instructed, they have a commandment to remit the loan. If they didn't, the loan is still valid. So it's their money. Whereas according to the Orzaru and the others, the loan is canceled automatically. So if you go into my pocket and take the money from the borrower, then you are a, then you are a thief. There's uh, a lot more discussions about this issue of Shemitah Sksafim. One of the major qualifiers of Shemitah Sksafim is if you have a loan that has, it's a dated loan, the Gemara Maka says, you have a loan which is a dated loan and it's set to expire after Shemitah, that loan is not cancelled by Shemitah. Shemitah only cancels loans that are due at the end of uh, Shemitah. But if the loan is uh, a loan, so if Mari borrowed the $2 and he said, I, borrow, I say, no problem, pay me in six months. Now that loan survives Shemitah because it was had a due date that was beyond. There's a lot of detailed laws. We'll go through them a little bit when we give that parsha. But I wanted to show you it's in our parsha. Parsha is A. It's timely because we are at the end of Shemitah. Have a great week.